If you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what I'd like to do to begin. Let's read verse 2 through verse 16, and then we're going to pray and ask God to help us with this very difficult text uh, as we maneuver through it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering." If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. How many of you would like to be the pastor today? <laughs> That's clear as mud, right? Uh, but the Lord's going to help us, so let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, you are good, and your spirit brings gospel clarity and gospel unity. And that is what I ask for you today. Jesus, uh, help us work through this text, understanding it, uh, that we may grow from it and be sanctified by it. It is in Jesus' name every Christian said, amen. amen. What do we do when we come to texts like this in Scripture? I don't know if you know this, but, but almost 99.7% of Scripture is pretty straightforward and pretty clear. It's either telling a story from the historical perspective of how God moved in his people, what he told them to do, how they obeyed him or disobeyed him, and the results that came after, uh, the commandments, the, uh, the, the teaching of the New Testament, do this, don't do this. Most of the Bible is pretty clear, but every now and again we come to a hard text. There's actually books. One of my favorite books is by a guy named F.F. F. Bruce called Hard Sayings of Jesus. Because sometimes when you're reading the Bible, Jesus says things and you're, you don't know what to do with it. How many of you uh, remember when Jesus taught, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out? Now as I look around, 
This morning, I don't see many pirate patches. And I'm pretty sure our eyes have caused many of us to sin. I mean, in the same parable, Jesus taught if your hand, or in the same teaching, rather, Jesus said if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go to heaven without a hand than it is to not go to heaven with two hands. Jesus taught that. But here we are today with all of our limbs. Right? There, there's some hard teachings, but when we understand it in its context, it can make better sense to us. I mean, Jesus said things like, uh, you got to hate your mother and hate your father in order to follow me. Now, we know Jesus can't mean we hate our parents because the Bible commands us to honor our parents. Right? It's one of the first commandments that come with a promise that it may go well with you and thou mayest live long on the earth. I memorized everything in King James Version before the ESV was out. So when I'm quoting scripture, you're going to get some thys, thous, theys, and thouest, mayest, all that kind of stuff. Right? What do we do when we come to something like this that's, that Paul is clearly teaching the women to wear a head covering at different portions within the worship service. That is happening here. And what I'm really excited about this morning, but what I don't want to take a lot of time. Last service, we were down to four minutes and I was on verse six. So I got to be faster. But let me just tell you, I want to show you some examples. There is... A th- a theological discipline that helps us understand hard portions of Scripture like this. It's called hermeneutics, and every hermeneutic book is the same. They use different language. They have different triads and grids, but every, this is the one we teach all of our Titus guys, the guys who are coming up, uh, being taught by us to be elders and pastors in the church. This is the one that we give them by Andreas Kostenberger. And when we come to a hard text where it doesn't make sense on its own, we have to open up the three worlds of the text. Let me explain what those are. And this, man, if if you get this, this is going to help you in these hard places of God's word. There is the first world of the text. David Winter, a Greco-Roman scholar, especially regarding Corinth, says this. For most of the New Testament, knowing a passage's historical cultural context can enhance one's understanding. But this is usually not necessary to understand the passage accurately. Right? When we read Paul's command, do not commit sexual immorality, we didn't have to have a historical sketch to understand what Paul was trying to communicate. Most of the Bible is that way. However, this passage on head coverings is one of the few places in which there is simply no way we can understand the text without understanding its historical cultural context. What did covering one's head communicate in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day? If we cannot answer that question, then we cannot accurately understand this passage. So we're going to have to dig into the first one. There, this is written 2,000 years ago in a place very different from Ackworth, Georgia. 
Corinth. Now, Corinth has similarities to Ackworth, sexual promiscuity. I mean, people acting like wild animals. It was a terrible place. It had the temple of Aphrodite. There were a thousand temple prostitutes that descended upon the city every night. It was a corrupt, sexually immoral, promiscuous place. It was a bad place to be. We need to understand that culture, that context. We need to understand the prostitutes, how they dressed, how they wore their hair, and how respectable women in uh, the first century would uh, present themselves in public. We have to understand context before we get to the words on the page, which is the second world of the text. Words have meaning. When Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. When you look at the words on the page and you can see that Jesus in his teaching is speaking with hyperbole, which is a a teaching method where you intentionally exaggerate a point to help your audience know how important it is. Of course, Jesus doesn't want us to cut and harm our own bodies, but he does want us to realize how important sin is in the life of a believer. The words on the page have meaning and when we understand its context and the words on the page then we can rightly get to the third world of the text which is the application for us today and that's what I hope to do with you now you see all these other books And not to belabor this, but I see this happen so often especially in uh, young men who love the Lord and have theological aptitude Sometimes they read deep in one place instead of reading wide. And it causes their growth, their maturity to be stunted. I want you to look at these commentaries. These are all the commentaries our pastors have read to rightfully, hopefully teach you God's word through the Corinthian letters. And guess what? This is a wide variety What we don't want, how many of you, you grew up in one church? I grew up in one church. My grandfather used to have a saying. He was a pioneer founder of the Church of God out of Cleveland, Tennessee. He used to have a saying, Church of God or hell, you got to choose one. Because we got the right theology. Them Baptists down the road, they don't have the right theology. Methodists down the road, they don't have the right theology. Right? That's called going deep. That's called just reading one thing one way and, well, I'm Baptist, so we're going to do it the Baptist way. None of you should have that kind of closed-minded thinking because as we read God's Word, it's going to grow us out of the traditions of men that we've become used to just by simply being part of a family or part of a denomination or part of a tradition, amen? So what we do to get a right interpretation We read from reformed guys. We read from, oh, Johnny Mac. I like Johnny Mac. Don't agree with it. Warren Wearsby. We've got Anglicans in here. We've got uh, Gordon Fee, who's a charismatic. You got to read the Methodists. You got to read the Baptists. You got to read it all because what you'll see is very clear teaching forming as as men pursue the Lord as they study scripture and when you see a balance the Anglicans are saying the same thing about this as the Methodists and the Baptists are saying the same thing as the Charismatics well you know you're getting to something that you can build your house on at that point 
So many guys, they read one book or one group of guys, and those are their guys, and that's all they read, and they stunt their growth because they don't even know what questions to ask that their team is getting wrong unless you begin to read wide. So I'm bringing wide teaching. I'm bringing teaching. every the, How I'm going to teach chapter 11 today, every one of these commentaries agrees with. So that gives me confidence this morning. Because guess what? I'm human and I can get it wrong. Amen? And I don't want to get it wrong because I'm responsible as your pastor this morning. You know, some guys, they just go around shooting their theological guns and it's dangerous. This is real this morning and this is a hard text and I don't want to get it wrong. So move with me now as we go through this text in hopes that you may be sanctified as God's people empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and be all things to all people as we just left Paul's teaching on meat, uh, meat, thank you, sacrifice to idols. Sixth week of meat, sacrifice to idols. And I've already forgotten. <laughs> Chapter 11. Now watch this, we're moving. Chapter 8, 9, 10 was all about these situational things that were happening outside the church. Now we're moving inside the church. The next several chapters, Paul's going to be talking about what it looks like when we come together inside the gathered corporate worship service. And he starts off, now I commend you because you remember the traditions. You remember my teachings. I commend you. So Paul starts out here as the church is gathering together, with the one thing he can commend them on. Look at verse 17 real quick in your Bibles. The next several chapters, Paul says, now these other things I can't commend you on. Paul's a great communicator. Don't you know when, when the boss calls you into the office and you go in and the boss says, I just want you to know I think you're doing a really great job with your data entry. You know what's coming next. They always start with the positive so they can give. Now, here's what we need to work on next. Well, Paul's doing the same thing. He's going to say, I can't commend you on the Lord's Supper. That's all next week. I can't commend you on the use of spiritual gifts within the church. You're not doing that right at all. I can't commend you on an orderly worship service. You guys are like a circus. Right? So there's a lot he can't, but this he can commend on because they're following his teaching. And listen to this, and this is important. Don't, get, don't mess this up. Don't just think, well, this must be a culture of things. So we sweep it under the rug. Because Paul did teach them to act like this within this context. They're doing. They're following the tradition of Paul. Now let me say something about tradition. Because there's gospel and there's tradition. And tradition changes and the gospel doesn't. I give every one of our Titus guys, guys who want to be leaders in the church, a book called The Wonder of Worship. And most of them hate the book because it's a historical sketch. But I like historical sketches. So, but I give it to them because I want them to know that we almost don't do anything like the early church does in our forms of worship and gathering today. Uh, and that's oh. Okay, just, just worship alone. 
Man, worship started out as antiphonal uh, uh, hymnodies that moved to acapella singing that, that moved forward. We had uh, the whole season of the Gregorian chants. Right? Right? We've sung in different languages. We've sung in Latin. We've sung different languages. Uh, we've got choirs. Uh, the pipe organ was introduced uh, sometime uh, in, in the, the middle, middle centuries. It took a thousand. When they brought the pipe organ into the church, the crowd said, no way. That's secular. That can't be used in war. Can you believe that? The pipe organ was at one time scandalous. It took a thousand years for the pipe organ to become the staple in the traditional churches that many of you, uh, some, some people go into a church and there's not a pipe organ, that church is doing something wrong. But at the introduction of the pipe organ, it was scandalous. We are a changing people. And here's the deal. We can't go back and proclaim the gospel to people who have already been. And we can't go forward and proclaim the gospel to our great, 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 great grandchildren. We haven't figured out, you know, uh, time warps and, 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 and whatever that time travel. So the only thing we can do is right now in our culture, in our context, proclaim the gospel, make disciples, disciple our children. Doesn't it just bless your heart? These young men and women coming in here wanting to be baptized because we're teaching them the gospel? So that, guess what? If we make those disciples well, they will tell their children, and their children will tell their children. That's how we reach the future generations, not through time travel, but through doing what Jesus said, making disciples. The church is constantly changed. We don't do, we don't do the Lord's Supper the same way they did. When we read uh, next week, we're going to see the Lord's Supper in the first century was called the Love Feast. It was a huge meal where everybody sat around tables together and ate a full course meal. Not everything today is the same as it was in the first century. And aren't you glad? I know some of you want to go back and live like it's the first century, but personally, I like having a toilet. But praise God for plumbing. We don't have to walk so many steps outside the camp and dig a hole so deep to go to the bathroom. Thank goodness for, I mean, you can hear my voice. I had a sinus infection this week. My voice is almost out already. Uh, thank goodness for a microphone. Thank goodness I don't have to get into a boat and go out onto water or climb a mountain so I can teach so people can hear. Right? Everything is constantly changing. And change is, I know none of us like it, but change is good. We need change. As we're reading the Bible, we should be changing and growing as God sanctifies us. We're not moving backward. We're going forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. So have that in your mind as we walk through this text, as we understand the theological depth of it that is real, that we need. And as we bring it into our context of today. You're doing a good job with the things I taught you about how to dress when you come to church, men and women. That's how Paul opens up here. But I want you to understand that the head, underline that word. That word kephali uh, in the Greek. 
It's an important word. We're going to see head 14 more times as we walk through this passage. But here's, our, here's the depth of what Paul wants to say. Here's why he's given the teaching about head coverings. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So does man have a head? Yes. Here's what you need to understand. Everyone is under authority. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now here's what happens. How many of you know what the word egalitarian means? Don't raise your hand, I guess. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But there are a lot, lots of egalitarian churches today. And egalitarian churches, you know what they hate more than anything else? Authority. They want to do what they want to do, and not even the Bible can tell them differently. So they want to take that word kephala, and they want to translate it as source. It just means source. It doesn't mean authority. It means source. But here's why you cannot translate. That's an errant translation. It's not true. It's not right. It's not even close. And here's why. Because look at that last little piece of verse 3. The head of Christ is God. If we translate that word kephala, source, that means that the Father is the source of Christ, which tears down the triune Godhead himself. And it makes God the Father the pre-existing God. And Jesus is something that the Father came up with a little later and put together and brought into existence. And that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that from eternity past, God is and always has been. In the beginning, he said, let us make man in our image. Let us do this. They were harmoniously in sync, in relationship, God amongst himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, having always been and always will be. He is the beginning and the end. The Christ, Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, was not an afterthought that came later. It was decided amongst the Father, Son, and Spirit, the ways that they would communicate with creation and that Jesus, the second person, would be the Christ to come down and wrap himself in human flesh, showing what authority looks like for a man to God, which is why the correct translation is authority, because what did Jesus do on planet Earth? He, we know he lived the perfect life that we have not lived we know he satisfied every righteous requirement uh, that God demanded of humanity. Jesus did that. And what did Jesus always say? Jesus, wrapped in human flesh, said things like, I only go where the Father tells me to go. I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Because God, wrapped in human flesh, was showing the importance of authority. You can, I know you want to. We all do. What does our world have the biggest problem with? Authority. Who do we always blame when things in our life aren't right? We blame whoever is in charge. Right, Biden came out with his whole Bidenomic slogan. That has not worked well for him. <laughs> right? Because who do we blame when gas prices are up, when uh, a carton of eggs is $3.50? Who do we blame? We blame the people in charge. But the reality is, 
You cannot escape authority anywhere on planet Earth. It's built in by God's design to everything. Why? Because God is in full authority and he builds it into everything he creates so that we can see and know that he is where the buck stops. Think about it. People bristle, especially women bristle at at the man being the head of woman. But everybody is, the Bible teaches everybody's under authority. Even something as simple as a sports team. Name a sports team that doesn't have a coach or a captain. Name a business that doesn't have a a founder or a president. Name Name an organization that doesn't have a CEO and a CFO. A church that doesn't have a pastor. A church, uh, uh, I mean, what would the Catholic Church be without the Pope? That's an aw- a little office pool. Every team has a leader. And creation is no different. And Paul seeks to ground this in creation a little later. But for our purpose now, here's the theological depth that we need to understand. Man is under authority. What what is his authority? Christ is man's authority. Men are under submission to Christ. And then women are in under authority too. Man, that's how God created us. In this day and age of gender confusion, may we, and if you think about it, and God's way is the only way things can really work within humanity in a way that blesses and flourishes humanity. A man and a woman coming together under the roles that God has given them in lifelong commitment to one another that not only is enjoyable if done well, if men love their wives like Christ loved the church, it's easy for women to honor and respect their husbands and come together within the roles that God has created. And we raise families that are healthy and mature because we're doing things God's way. God's way is the best way. And God's way has everything to do with authority. That is what head means. Are you ready to go? Let's go. Verse 4. Every man. Now watch this. Who Underline this. Who prays or prophesies. Two things. Because one thing is very clear. There is no command in this text for a woman to wear, to constantly wear a head covering through an entire service. But there is a context within the context, and that context is praying and prophesying within the service, which are both public speaking gifts. And so when a man prays or prophesies within a service, he's to have his head uncovered. But if a woman prays or prophesies, this is the text, I've just memorized it. If a woman prays or prophesies, uh, she is to have her head covered. Now, what, how can we understand this unless we understand the culture? Here's what we know. In Corinth, the priests, who were some of the highest men in society of all the pagan temples, Temple of Aphrodite, Temple of Dionysius, there was a bunch of temples in Corinth. It's a very religious place. And all the priests in all those temples, and think about this, because this would have been highly offensive to the Jews who had grown up with their prayer shawls. They were, they were covering their head when they prayed. But Paul said, if you're a man, don't cover your head. The prayer shawl thing, don't do that anymore in the public service when you're praying or when you're prophesying. Why? 
because it was a sign of social eliteness. When a man could stand up and pray and use spoken language uh, to, to prophesy, to speak oracles of God, they would cover their head, and that head covering was a sign of their status. So why did God say, men, don't cover your head? Because when you're praying or prophesying in the Christian church, it's not about you. It's not about your status. Don't confuse people by making them think, well, look how great that guy is. He's got the head covering on. No, take the head covering off so you can honor who you're actually praying to, who you're under authority. It's not about you. It's who you're under authority of, and that is Christ. So take the cover off your head. Men, are we all trekking? Now, some would say, well, you know, I saw Ryan up there today, and he had that paper boy hat on. <laughs> right? A lot of our guys wear them Scottish beanies. Some of you know, oh, is that Kelly back there with the hat on? Kelly! Woo! You get a shout-out today. Any other hats in here? You filthy sinners, you know you can't go to heaven. Is that what it means? No. What does a baseball hat represent in our culture today? It represents that Kelly didn't take a shower this morning and was in a hurry. <laughs> Seriously, is it highbrow? Is it look at me and how socially elite I am? Of course not. It doesn't have the same meaning in our connotation or culture. Nobody's going to say, look at Kelly walking in here with that hat on. Does he think we should all respect him? No, it's not the same. So when we understand the first world of the text, we understand the words on the page, we can understand that as men, we should come in to this room knowing full well and presenting full well that we are not men who beat our chest. We're not chauvinists who think we have all the power. No, we are very much men under the authority of Christ. And men, if I can get there, I've got nine and a half minutes. If I can get there, I really want to talk about our role specifically within marriage. Because it is not a King Kong woman do what I say. It is a loving service. A love that Christ portrays to the church. It's not my way or the highway. And the Bible says, so you better listen. That's not a good marriage. Men should present themselves in church as being under the authority of Christ. And women in the same way when they pray or prophesy. Now, here's what nobody sees here. Women given spoken roles within the church 2,000 years ago. Do you understand the liberty that these Christian sisters have been given in Christ that they don't get anywhere else in the ancient world? In the ancient world, women were seen and not heard. Women were bought and sold through dowries. Women were uh, negotiate business negotiations between families. They were property. It's not right, but it's the way the world was. The Hittites, the Canaanites, all those ancient cultures, it's the way it was. Because women were created differently from men. Not to be abused, but ancient men did abuse women because they were smaller frame and weaker. So they became uh, abused. It's not right, but it's the way it was. But in the Christian church, women are elevated. 
All they could be in the pagan temples were prostitutes and slaves, which, by the way, the high-class prostitutes wore their hair long and down to flaunt themselves. They took the veils off to show their availability. And the lesser women, their heads were shaved just because when you're with so many people, it's just cleaner and more sanitary. So their heads were shaved to identify them as slaves and lower-class prostitutes. But in the Christian church, women were treated with dignity and respect and were even given speaking roles. They were part of the family. This is unique in ancient culture. But in this newfound freedom, and by the way, that's why you'll see at four points, there's only one role Scripture specifically says is for a man only, and that is the role of elder. When, when Paul in chapter 14 talks about a woman not being able to speak, uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, I won't allow a woman to speak with authority, he goes straight into the elder roles next. There's one place that's strictly for man to uphold the creation order of responsibility that man has to lead his home and to lead the church, and that is the uh, office of elder pastor. Now, some churches try to get away with pastor, and they say, well, you know, it's not really an office in the Bible, but it is a verb in the Bible, poimen, and it's always connected with the job of the elder. So you, there's no loopholes, egalitarians. One role looks for male only. Every other role is open for both men and women within the church, which is why at four points you're going to see women on stage. You're going to see women opening up the service with calls to worship. You're going to see women reading the scripture. You're going to see women um, uh, praying over us and leading us in prayer. You're going to see women leading teams of volunteers throughout the church because Jesus changed everything. Amen? And it's good. But in this newfound freedom... Paul says a woman should cover her head. So in this freedom, she's reminded, just like the man is reminded by uncovering his head, that he's under the authority of Christ. A woman needs to be reminded as she uses her speaking gifts, as she prays and prophesies, that she is under the authority of her husband and the pastors of the church. We trekking. All right, now Paul's going to ground. I got five minutes. Paul's going to ground this now in creation. Verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Let me ask you a question. Is it disgraceful in our day and age, in our culture, for a woman to have short hair? Do we see a woman with short hair out at the mall and go, oh, look at that harlot? <laughs> of course we don't. Right? Styles change. We're 2,000 years. But in this culture, who had their hair short? Who had their heads shaved? Prostitutes and slaves. God's women shouldn't look like them. They should hold themselves. They should honor their husbands by dressing modestly, by showing in this culture the head covering was, was a sign that you weren't open for business. That you belonged to someone and you honored your husband and you kept your vows. You were chaste and modest. And let me just say to all the women in this church, I'm so thankful for you. Because we don't have a lot, we don't have a bunch of Kardashians around here. Aren't you glad? I mean, we live in the day and age of women wearing men's blazers with nothing underneath them. We live in the, the day and age of free the nipple. 
I mean, we really are. We're, we're in the day and age of the emperor's new clothes, right? Just, just wear nothing. Be naked. Use your body to seduce and manipulate uh, men around you. You should want their gaze. You should want to be objectified by them. And all the men who don't love Jesus are like, yay, feminists, come on, keep it coming. But it's not the way women should present themselves. And the women on our stage who sing and lead in worship, they are modest. In our day and age, if a woman showed up in, what if we had baptism and a woman showed up in a two-piece bikini? No. And we, and we help. We have tools. It's dark clothes. We're not into showing off. We're into modesty. We're into chastity. We're into honoring husbands by dressing appropriately. It shows honor to God when we honor our husbands, ladies. Amen? Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, theological truth some practical application for the first century church. And now Paul roots this theological truth in creation itself. There is a way things came to be. What did God do first in Genesis chapter 1? He creates men and he creates women. He creates male and female, both in his image and in his likeness. But then when we get to Genesis chapter 2, the the camera comes out and we get a 30,000 foot view of how exactly male and female were created. Man was made first, and he was placed in the garden. And in the garden, he had a job. Remember, he was naming the animals. He was taking care uh, of the the trees and the garden itself. Work's not part of the curse. Work was always part of of our ontological being, our being created. We were created to do things with our hands. So Adam's in the garden. But what does he notice? He notices that all the animals have a suitable partner and that he doesn't. And God said it's not good that man doesn't have a partner. And God didn't make a mistake. He lets Genesis 2 play out like this so that we will understand what it means to have a partner. And Adam is put to sleep and from his rib, God forms woman. The rib is very important because it shows the side-by-side companionship that a marriage should showcase. And God put Adam to sleep and made woman for the man. So when, when God brought Adam out of his slumber, he looks at Eve, finally a suitable, suitable partner for himself, and he says, whoa, man. <laughs> Listen. This is the glory of marriage. They were naked and unashamed, right? He looks at his wife, woman, and and it's it's this beautiful, complementarian, wonderful thing that God has done in giving man a helper to come alongside of him, both equal in dignity, honor, value. Both should be respected as image bearers of God, but God does give different roles to each, and those roles of authority should be honored. 
because men and women are not interdependent. They need one another. Men need women and women need men, which is Paul's next point. And I'm past time, but we're going to go on. So just keep the seatbelt on. Nevertheless, verse 11. Oh, the angels. Let's talk about the angels. Because where, I mean, this just shows up out of nowhere. But even the angels are under authority. If you go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, the angels that stand in the presence of God, crying as they look upon him, they cry, holy, holy, holy. Imagine the seraphim being in the presence of God. And every time they catch a glimpse of his glory, just they see new depth to who God is and they just continuously cry and continuously sing, holy, 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 holy is the Lord, holy is God almighty. And with their wings, even the angels, they take two wings. They are six-winged creatures, the seraphim. They cover their, their faces and they cover their feet for its holy ground. With two wings, they suspend themselves in the air as they gaze and sing, Holy unto the Lord. Why should we be under authority? Because even the angels are under authority. Man is under authority. Woman is under authority. Christ in the incarnation showed us what it meant to honor authority. He honored the Father as men should honor the Father, as women should honor their husbands. Moving to verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man... So man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Men, if at any point in this sermon you find yourself wanting to, to take your wife and say, See, you should listen to everything I say. You have missed the point. I mean, that's an adventure in missing the point. It should be easy for our wives to respect us, to honor us, to, to, to be modest, to, to want people to know that that is, is my man, to willingly, listen, ladies, this is, this, is not a, this is not a jungle gym cage match. You should willingly and intelligently Want to honor your husband because in honoring your husband, you are honoring Christ and the role that he has given you on planet earth. And men, you should not make it hard for your wives to honor you. You, you know what it looks like to be a good husband? Here's what each, let, let me be a leader for you today, men. Baby, come up here. Come up here. I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry. Give her a hand. That is my smoking hot wife right there. You want, you want to know what it means to be a man? It's to know when you're wrong. It's to know when you're being dumb. And it's to look at your wife and say, baby, I'm sorry. I want to be a better man for you. Let's pray and ask God to help me be a better leader of this family because it's a responsibility that men are constantly wanting to abdicate. We abdicate. 
And ladies, when men abdicate, what, what is the role that you try to take on? You try to take the wheel, just like Genesis says. You look at your husband, you know, look at him, he's playing Zelda on the couch again. <laughs> so I'm going to take the wheel, just like Genesis in the curse says. But it's his role, so you've got to help him see his role. And men, you can't repent of your sin of abdication. That's what a good marriage is. Together, side by side, companion, me repenting and wanting to be a better man for her and her helping me become that man that God has called me to be. That's what it looks like. Not, hey, where's my dinner? If it's burnt, you're out of here. You can sit down. Thank you, baby. (laughs) We're interdependent. Men, we need our women. Women, we need, all right, you need your men. We got to do this God's way. Verse 14, last point. Paul now grounds the the creation and the theology of the interdependence of men and women and the authority that exists within these gender structures. You can't erase it. The alphabet community can't erase what God has put in place. It's even grounded in nature. Nature itself displays the authority structure that God has put in place. Does not nature itself teach you That if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul says, just look around. Look at every culture around. Now, when I was young, at camp meetings, there was a song guys used to sing. And I can't believe this is a real thing. But this is a real thing. I can only remember two lines of it. But here it goes. They were speaking to men in the church. If your hair's too long, there's sin in your heart. <laughs> if your hair's too long, you can't get saved. That's a real song. <laughs> Praise God for sanctification, amen. We can grow and not be idiots. Is there time for men to have long hair in the scripture itself? Yes. There were Nazarite vows where a man was not allowed to cut his hair if he was in a vow. But why is Paul saying this now? Because in every culture, most of the men have short hair and most women have long hair. Why? Did you know physiologically there are three stages to hair growth in a human being? For both men and women, there's the formation and growth stage. There is the resting stage. And then there is the fallout stage. Testosterone in men caused uh, the formation and growth stage uh, to, to be moved through very fastly. That's why, man, I went to school with guys who were in their 20s and already losing their hair. Testosterone naturally uh, causes the growth stage in men. I know, I know it doesn't look like it right now for me, but <laughs> it's getting a little long. But, but I guess I just have low testosterone. <laughs> Which is not something I want to talk about. Um, uh, we're so off track. Come on, come back with me. Come back. We're already eight minutes late. 
Testosterone causes a man's hair to grow into the resting and fall stage early. But the woman, estrogen in a woman, keeps her hair in stage one. For mo- Most ladies never even get to fallout stage. Very few ever do because the estrogen their body produces physiologically keeps their hair growing. Which is why in every continent... In every culture, women naturally have long hair. It's a sign from nature. God built it into nature that a woman needs a covering. Right, so Paul says, finally in verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So let's wrap this up. So what does this look like for us now? We know in this ancient world, a modest chaste woman would publicly wear a head covering to show that she was a taken woman. She was spoken for. She was not open for business, especially in the church as she is uh, receiving these new freedoms of being able to pray and to speak the oracles of God publicly to her brothers and sisters in Christ. How, how could that, should we today have to go back to an ancient form of dress that no one in our culture would even understand without writing books and, and essays of explanation? What are some simple ways that we can honor the principle of creation that God made man to be under the authority of Christ and for a woman to honor and respect her husband as he's been given the responsibility of leadership in the home and in the church? How are ways we can do this today? Well, one very simple. What have we been doing for the last hundred years in our country How do we show that? How do we walk into a restaurant? And if we sit at the bar, how do we show that we're not open for business? We wear our wedding ring. It's the way we honor our spouse. The wedding ring, the unending circle represents, the reason it's a circle represents the never-ending commitment we make when we vow to our spouse that I am yours and you are mine in sickness and health and adversity as well as prosperity as long as we both shall live. The integrity of the metal of the ring. Some of you got rubber on, I know. It's a whole new world. I'm gonna have to change my wedding ceremony. But for rings that are actually made of metal, the integrity of the metal of the ring represents the integrity of the commitment that we make to one another today. Church, do not get bogged down in trying to go back to live like we have to live into the first century. We live in 2023, and in order for us to be all things to all people, we take God's creative order, and we take the deep theological truth of men and women and their relationships together, and we hold tight to them as we present ourselves in the world in which we live. Each of these commentaries agrees with this teaching. May God be praised, and may you be free in your conscience. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, grow us and sanctify us in your word. Jesus, give us all the tools we need to honor you in the way that we worship you today. Lord Jesus, as a family, Lord Jesus, together as brothers and sisters in your church, may consciences be clean as we leave this place this morning. It is in Jesus' name and every Christian said,
Amen.